Hello all and welcome to episode 14 of the podcast. This is and indeed I am the Dream Filter. Today I'll again be discussing the Gulf War. Last week we covered Operation Desert Shield, which began with the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, August 2nd to 4th, 1990, and concluded with Operation Desert Storm that began on January 16th or 17th, depending on your time zone, and ended on February 28th, 1991. Last week we focused on the build-up to the invasion of Kuwait and lead-up to Operation Desert Storm. Today, we'll concentrate on Desert Storm itself. If you haven't already had a listen to last week's podcast, you could do so now. But, you know, it's not as if you have to. Operation Desert Storm was carried out by the US and its allies over a six-week period, during which time Iraq endured one of the most brutal, unrelenting aerial bombardments ever civilian and military infrastructure both copping the brunt. The US-led alliance flew over a hundred thousand sorties, roughly two thousand per day, up to a hundred an hour. This was in addition to multiple strikes from warships firing Tomahawk missiles, most notably in the early hours of the campaign. A total of about 88,500 tons of bombs were lobbed onto Iraq within that six-week period. In addition to this, even by the Pentagon's own admission, approximately 320 tons of depleted uranium munitions were fired, primarily from aircraft such as the A-10 fighter jet and tanks like the M1 Abrams. Iraq has been irradiated by the use of these munitions ever since, with hideous results. Chemical weapons, hey? The West, in all of its moral glory, just hates those chemical weapons. As detailed in the previous episode, the internationally sanctioned destruction of Iraq was aided by a pathetically subservient mainstream media, which with an honourable mention to the odd reporter or source that undertook some real journalism, operated as a gonorrhea-ridden harlot, shamelessly disseminating US government propaganda without pause. Needless to say, this appalling conduct did not correct itself when the bombs began to drop and the slaughter got underway. Let's start by discussing the pooling system. Under the system, partially the brainchild of notorious neocon Dick Cheney, the Defense Secretary from 1989 to 1993 who would go on to become Vice President under Bush Jr., the media coverage of Operation Desert Storm would be massively censored and controlled, the ultimate result being a highly sanitized coverage of the six-week massacre. This could not have been pulled off without a three-way understanding between high-up government officials, military brass, and media executives. Now that's what I call an axis of evil. The system made it forbidden for any news personnel to work independently of the US and its allied forces during the campaign. And only a tiny number of news personnel, somewhere between several dozen and a couple of hundred, had direct access to the US-dominated coalition forces. 
Even then, it could only happen under U.S. military escort, making it all but impossible to authenticate information disseminated at the various official press briefings, such as those often held in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Those that attempted to buck the system and go it alone, i.e., those who sought to attempt some real journalism, risked arrest, incarceration, and prosecution not only from Iraqi forces but U.S. and Saudi forces. For more specific information on this, you could access the following online article. It is titled "War in the Gulf: The Press, Correspondence, Protest, Pool System." It was written by R. W. Apple Jr. and was originally published in the New York Times on February twelfth, nineteen ninety-one, during Operation Desert Storm, but can now be found on the newspaper's online archives. The pool system saw small groups of disparate news personnel, under the escort of U.S. military officials, get a brief tour to a hotspot where they could observe activity. When the group returned from their little soiree, they were to share their findings with associates. The reports would be distributed and finally disseminated by various international journalists, but not before a comprehensive security review had been undertaken by military censors. If you'd like an anecdote, they're easy to find. You can get an article by Christiane Amanpour, herself a wicked individual. Not in a positive way. Found on www.pbs.org. From the weather section, capital W, capital E, capital T, capital A, you can link to reporting America at war. Then click on Amanpour and her article, "The Gulf War Pool System," in which she explains how she was pulled to stay aboard an aircraft carrier far from the battlefield. She also detailed how an innocuous article by a colleague on board was censored, though it was nothing more than a human interest item about interactions with pilots. Ultimately, while she conceded that reporters bore some responsibility for the blanket lack of proper coverage, Amanpour placed primary blame upon the media executives, who had evidently been all too compliant with the Pentagon and its new. Ultra draconian methods of censorship, with government control over the military and military control over the media. How was the overall coverage? I'm sure you can guess. Shortly, we'll be getting into some specifics. You just love those specifics, don't you? I've sensed it since episode one. But first, some more background context. According to Elihu Katz, who wrote *The End of Journalism: Notes on Watching the War*, published in September 1992 in the Journal of Communication, Volume 42, Issue 3, now to be found on the Wiley Online Library, there were big differences between the media coverage of the Vietnam War and Gulf War. Obviously, this is a no-brainer, but I'd like to read you a snippet from the essay. This is from page eight. Dot dot dot. Compared to Vietnam, it was certainly live television. The processing of news from the Vietnamese jungles for broadcast in New York took some thirty hours. Compared to the Gulf, 
no time at all. Except that there was no news from the Gulf. More exactly, there was non-stop information without interpretation, and non-stop interpretation without information. There was CNN to provide information, generals to provide reassurance, and experts galore to provide interpretation. Leaders and public stayed tuned full-time, apparently, but almost everybody agrees that, journalistically speaking, it was a poor show. Dot, dot, dot. What this quote clearly fails to conceptualize is the nature of the info overall agenda of the generals and so-called experts, as well as how this clearly tainted their interpretations. I'm going to read a snippet from an article by FAIR, capital F, capital A, capital I, capital R. It's titled, The Military-Industrial-Media Complex. Why War is Covered from the Warrior's Perspective. Written by Norman Solomon, published in August 2005. This will likely not be the only time that I lift info from said article. The subtitle of the section I will read from is Spinning Civilian Deaths. Here it is. By the time of the 1991 Gulf War, retired colonels, generals, and admirals had become mainstays in network TV studios during wartime. Language such as collateral damage flowed effortlessly between journalists and military men who shared perspectives on the occasionally mentioned and even more rarely seen civilians killed by US firepower. At the outset of the Gulf War, NBC's Tom Brokaw echoed the White House and a frequent chorus from US journalists by telling viewers, brackets, January 16, 91, we must point out again and again that it is Saddam Hussein who put these innocents in harm's way. When those innocents got a mention, the US government was often depicted as anxious to avoid hurting them. A couple of days into the war, brackets, January 17, 91, Ted Koppel told ABC viewers that great effort is taken, sometimes at great personal cost, to American pilots. That civilian targets are not hit. Two weeks later, brackets, January 29, 91, Brokaw was offering assurances that the US has fought this war at arm's length with long-range missiles, high-tech weapons, to keep casualties down. With such nifty phrasing, no matter how many civilians might die as a result of American bombardment, the US government, and by implication its taxpayers, could always deny the slightest responsibility. And a frequent US media message was that Saddam Hussein would use civilian casualties for propaganda purposes, as though that diminished the importance of those deaths. With the Gulf War in its fourth week, brackets, February 9th, 91, Bruce Morton of CBS provided this news analysis. If Saddam Hussein can turn the world against the effort, 
convince the world that women and children are the targets of the air campaign, then he will have won a battle. He's only won so far. In American television lands, when Iraqi civilians weren't being discounted or dismissed as Saddam's propaganda fodder, they were liable to be rendered non-persons by omission. On the same day that 2000 bombing runs occurred over Baghdad, anchor Ted Koppel reported (brackets January 23, 91). Aside from the Scud missile that landed in Tel Aviv earlier. It's been a quiet night in the Middle East. News coverage of the Gulf War in U.S. media was sufficiently laudatory to the warmakers in Washington that a former Assistant Secretary of State, Hodding Carter, remarked (brackets C-SPAN, February 23, 91): "If I were the government, I'd be paying the press for the kind of coverage it is getting right now." A former media strategy ace for President Reagan put a finer point on the matter. If you were going to hire a public relations firm to do the media relations for an international event, said Michael Diva, it couldn't be done any better than this is being done. That's the end of the passage. For further perspective, I shall read you a snippet from page twenty-seven of the online essay. Media images of war by Michael Griffin, published April nineteen, two thousand and ten, on the Media War and Conflict section of the online Sage Journals resource, all in capitals S A G E. Here it is. Dot dot dot. The dearth of actual combat coverage was echoed in the lack of images revealing destructive consequences of the war. Our data supported the observation made by many other commentators that this was a sanitized war. Only 27 of 1,104 pictures in the U.S. news magazines (brackets about 2%). Showed any signs of wounded or killed soldiers, and most of these were photos of flag-draped coffins in U.S. hometown funerals, brackets, or simply heads and shoulders portraits of the dead reproduced from graduation or military ID pictures. The total number of images of hurt or killed civilians from all sectors of the conflict. Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and Israel was 19, less than 2% of published pictures. Dot dot dot. Before we move on to Desert Storm, let's be sure not to tar everyone with the same brush, even in the mainstream media. As mentioned, the odd reporter tried to do their job properly. Also, a few executives apparently collaborated on a letter to Bush to voice concerns over censorship, particularly in Saudi Arabia. Sometime after the war finished, meanwhile, Ted Koppel, an ABC presenter, had the following to say: "I'm not sure the public's interest is served by seeing what seems to have been such a painless war." When fifty thousand to one hundred thousand people may have died on the other side, 
Now, though, it's time to move on to some specifics of Operation Desert Storm. Do you know anyone who confuses the word specifics with pacifics? I think we all do, don't we? But I do digress. In the early hours of January 17th, Baghdad time, the six-week bombardment commenced. I won't give you the details on the various craft and munitions involved. You can look it up for yourself. From the outset, targets included various civilian infrastructure along with military installations and units across Iraq and beyond, including in the capital city, Baghdad. Government buildings, TV and radio stations, press buildings, communications lines, telephone exchanges, airports, oil fields, medical facilities, educational facilities and power plants were among the facilities earmarked for immediate annihilation through a mixture of precision-guided bombardment and unguided carpet bombing. Access to drinking water for the Iraqi population became an immediate and clearly urgent problem. Dams, reservoirs and waterways were targeted, as were sewage treatment plants. Think about this for a moment, people. Do it. How would you cope if a foreign power set up camp in your region, then obliterated much of the infrastructure where you live? What would be your feelings about those who did it, the people carrying it out, and those commanding them to do so? How would you feel about them? Much if not most of these kinds of facilities and infrastructure across the country had already been blasted apart inside of day one. This is where we get into the topic of the official death toll of Iraqi civilians during the entire operation the conservative estimate of which is at least 3,500. Why is it conservative? Because it is only referring to direct fatalities. Those blown to bloody bits and pieces or incinerated by the coalition's bombs and rockets. With electricity out across much of the country within a few hours, there was no way to preserve foodstuffs such as meat. All medicines requiring refrigeration were ruined and machinery, including the life-saving variety in medical facilities such as hospitals, rendered useless. In Najaf, a city of about a million people south of Baghdad, in a single hospital, several dozen dialysis patients died because the electricity had been knocked out. Roughly 70 indirect fatalities in a single hospital in a single city of Iraq, which are not counted among the official estimate. Think of the countless people on life support machines of one kind or another. Not to mention babies in incubators. For real. In addition, Bedouin tribesmen, drifters who herded animals, were bombed in their tents. In one case, a man was the only survivor from 15 tribesmen. Agriculture was deliberately and systematically targeted. Chicken farms, dairy farms, herds of animal, crops, including via use of long-lasting chemical defoliating agents and food processing plants. The list is too long to mention in its entirety. 
Also, many banks were forced to close for precaution, not only against bombs, but looting. Currency became a lot scarcer. Can you imagine the misery? I can't. Part of me wants to, part of me doesn't. Empathy and selfishness. We all have a degree of each. Too many of us have too much of the latter. Can you conceive of the untold number of indirect deaths that resulted from this brutal ongoing bombardment over a period of six weeks, also in the aftermath? According to the Jordan Red Crescent Society, the real death toll of Iraqi civilians had already easily passed a hundred thousand by the end of the six-week campaign. A far cry from the official figure of three and a half thousand plus. To be fair, this figure is virtually impossible to verify, but is at least a far more accurate number than the generic official death toll you'll find in any mainstream summary of the conflict. The merciless onslaught over the first fortnight was a grotesquely suitable opening for the years of persecution and genocide that would be suffered by the Iraqi people under the boot of Anglo-American imperialism, with Hussein periodically lashing out by firing SCUD's missiles into Israel and Saudi Arabia, resulting in several deaths. On January 29th, with the US-led bombardment continuing unabated, Bush, in his State of the Union address before a joint congress, said the following. Dot, dot, dot. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order, where diverse nations are drawn together in common course to achieve the universal aspirations of mankind. Peace and security, freedom and the rule of law. Such is a world worthy of our struggle and worthy of our children's future. Dot, dot, dot. We will succeed in the Gulf, and when we do, the world community will have sent an enduring warning to any dictator or despot, present or future, who contemplates outlaw aggression. The world can, therefore, seize this opportunity to fulfill the long-held promise of a new world order where brutality will go unrewarded and aggression will meet collective resistance. Dot, dot, dot. On the morning of February 13th, US warplanes dropped two laser-guided bombs onto a civilian bomb shelter in the Baghdad district of Amaraya, killing 400 civilians as they slept, mainly women and children. Many were literally blown apart, but most were incinerated by the intense heat. The news media who arrived on the scene saw charred, dismembered corpses being removed from the scene of the crime, which would later be converted into a memorial for the victims, complete with hard-to-remove 
leftover stain marks that were caused by the incinerated bodies. A handful of scattered foreign governments would condemn the war crime. There would also be a little bit of objective reporting from the odd mainstream media news source. Jeremy Bowen of the BBC was among a number of foreign media personnel given immediate access to the site by Iraqi authorities. And, in a dispatch that aired on BBC One the day after, made it clear that no evidence suggested it had been used as a military site in any way. This would be quickly corroborated by other Western establishment media sources, including the Washington Post and even CNN, back in the day when they weren't quite as horrendously awful as they clearly are now. That aside, pictures of the dead were largely not broadcast or printed, even though Iraqi authorities had granted special permission to report from the scene without censorship. U.S. officials, meanwhile, despite a complete lack of evidence, disseminated the view that the shelter was being used as a military command center, the civilian victims being nothing more than human shields put there at the behest of Hussein. This position was promulgated by the CIA and Pentagon, and later backed up by a White House report titled Apparatus of Lies, Crafting Tragedy from the Bush White House Archives. Did you hear that? I'll do it again for you. That's the sound of two hands slapping together in spasmodic fashion, dusting each other off after completing a dirty job. Shall I do it again? No, maybe not. Here is an analogy. A powerful, violent criminal gang singles someone out, rapes them and kills them. There's a bit of broader debate about whether the gang is guilty or not guilty. There is no debate about its involvement, or even the gang admits that it carried out the action. The debate is only about guilt. One gang member says, not guilty. This is backed up by another gang member. Later, the gang leader confirms it. Not guilty. Case closed. This final overall verdict is good enough for propaganda organizations like the CNN of today that we all know and rightfully hate. The Amiraya shelter bombing atrocity was glossed over in a CNN article ambiguously titled Collateral Damage, A Brief History of U.S. Mistakes at War, written by some worthless buffoon, published online October 7, 2015. On February 15th, no doubt aware of the dire, hopeless situation facing his entire nation, civilian and military alike, Hussein announced he would comply with all prior UN resolutions demanding the withdrawal of his forces from Kuwait, on the condition that US-led international forces would also withdraw from the area, and that moves be taken to lead up to an eventual Israeli withdrawal from the Palestinian territories. 
This communique coincided with the first cross-border raid of coalition forces stationed in Saudi Arabia. The offer from the Hussein government was quickly rejected by Bush, even as the Soviet Union attempted to act as mediator to help draw down the catastrophe. On February 24th, the invasion began, with coalition ground troops and armored units leading the charge into Iraq and occupied Kuwait. An attack highlighted by several large-scale but one-sided battles involving tanks. The ground campaign would last only four days and force the withdrawal of Iraqi forces from Kuwait, while ultimately leaving the Hussein regime in Baghdad intact. This 100-hour ground campaign would provide an especially bloody crescendo to the morally bankrupt Operation Desert Storm, with countless thousands of hapless young Iraqi conscripts bearing the brunt of the New World Order. Worst of all, as you're no doubt aware, the climactic actions of US-led forces in these final days of the Gulf War, February 24th to 28th, which capped a proactive six-week period of extermination, would morph into a slow-burn genocide over the following decade-plus, wedged between Gulf War I and Gulf War II. We will discuss this crescendo and its aftermath in the next episode. I just wish to ask you this rhetorical question before we close for today. Do you really believe that the US and its allies are generally the good guys? And whoever their enemy of the day may be, are the bad guys? Do you accept such an idea? Do you really think it's that simple every single time? I'll just leave you to ruminate a little over this, if you would feel so inclined. Friends, that shall be all for today. Remember, question everything. Do your own research, keep a healthy, open mind, and above all, never forget, you've been given an intellect, so use it. Goodbye.